Welcome. This is Philippe Albuquerque. I am the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. I'm delighted today to welcome Joanna Ospel from the Department of Diagnostic Imaging and Clinical Neurosciences, Foothills Medical Center, University of Calgary, Alberta, Canada. She'll be discussing her recent manuscript, Recent Developments in Pre-Hospital and In-Hospital Triage for Endovascular Stroke Treatment. This manuscript will appear in the November print issue of the JNIS and is currently on the JNIS website. This Editor-in-Chief podcast is supported by Rapid Medical. Rapid Medical pioneers the only responsive neurovascular devices for greater control of procedural success. Now with best-in-class deliverability, the Tiger Retriever 17 adjustable clot retriever provides the lowest delivery forces across 3mm devices. Combined with the unique ability to reduce the device during retrieval, why choose between safety and efficacy when you can achieve both? Tough on clot, not on the vessel. Email or contact your local Rapid Medical representative to learn more. Joanna, at the outset, I want to thank you not only for your many contributions as an author to the JNIS, but also for your incredible work as a reviewer. It's exciting today to discuss this manuscript with you. Thank you, and thanks a lot for the opportunity to review all those papers and also to be on the podcast today. Well, let's get started, I think, from probably the most important point of the manuscript, and that's the definition of triage and how you define triage as it relates to the processing of patients that have suffered an acute ischemic stroke. Perhaps you could discuss that a bit. Yeah, for sure. So I think the kind of the, the original term triage, what it really describes is basically um, the assignment of resources based on where they can be best used and um, where they are most needed and where they are kind of most likely to achieve a good outcome. So it's really not about um, optimizing outcomes for all patients. It's it's literally about, it's kind of a term that has been coined um, in yeah disaster medicine or allocation of resources during um, yeah natural disasters. Uh, it's really about allocating a limited um, amount of resources to the most promising areas. And and that's what um, yeah what we've kind of adapted to stroke. Um, and what it what it really means there is to kind of root and and detect patients in a way that um, as many patients as possible can achieve a good outcome. Noting that that will be highly dependent on the local context. For instance, um, in a situation with um, highly constrained resources, it's probably yeah kind of a, a better way to um, be quite restrictive or only. Um, route patients to, say, an IVT or EVT-capable hospital um, who are, have a li- high likelihood of benefiting, whereas in a, in a setting with more available resources, say, high-income countries or places with excellent infrastructure, it's probably better to um, yeah, be a bit more lenient or include um, more patients who may have a slightly lower chance of, of having a treatment effect. So it really um, it kind of all depends on the available resources. So that's kind of built in the definition of triage. And I think that's what we have to keep in mind when talking about stroke patient triage. 
Sure. Um, you know, when I think about triage, I think kind of about the American military and military hospitals when where they're trying to decide which patients require the most urgent treatment, uh, which patients require emergent surgery, and, and how to get those patients into that pipeline as quickly as possible. You, you do allude to, um, I think, a, a critically important point, and that's the availability of resources in various different uh, countries and settings in which acute stroke is treated. How do we establish then benchmarks in such a varied community where, you know, in the third world, these patients may be triaged completely differently than they are, say, in Calgary or in the United States? Right. So I think that that's a, like basically the, the most critical point and also the most difficult challenge, I would I would say. And it's not even, um, I think one doesn't even have to go as far as the third world. You can even look at rural areas in um, northern Canada, for instance, where there's only a very, very limited amount of ambulances and sparsely populated areas with um, few transport um, capacities per Patients, so I think it, it that also applies to to kind of certain areas in in North America and Europe for sure. And I think the like one critical point you mentioned is that probably it's not possible to establish uniform benchmarks because everything is kind of context specific. Um, so it, there's no sense in kind of establishing an onset to hospital arrival door time if there are completely different jurisdictions. One patient has a stroke in kind of urban Chicago or something like that, and the other one somewhere in the Northern Territories, um, far away from any hospital. So I think that's that's one of the most critical points. To be honest, I don't um, know exactly how that could be done. I think one thing that has to be done is to um, kind of compare similar settings, although that's not perfect. So there's there's really no sense in comparing completely different infrastructures to each other. I think comparing more similar settings is is definitely a way to go that's still not perfect, um, but it's probably better than than um, yeah not doing anything at all or comparing apples and oranges. So would you suggest then perhaps a benchmark study in which you know high income areas, high income regions are assessed for these various benchmarks? Say we compare Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles, uh, what their benchmarks are, and then establish what we believe is the highest benchmark for the management of these patients. Yeah, I think that would be a good way. Um, another way I could imagine to do that is um, to basically standardize those metrics um, to population density, for instance, or available ambulance resources and um, hospitals per thousand um, residents, for instance. So I think there are ways to, to kind of... Um, standardize or normalize those metrics. And I think probably the most critical um, available resources are transport resources, IVT and EVT capable hospitals, and just the kind of um, how spread out the population is. So I think picking four or five of those key influential metrics and then standardizing times to those metrics, I could imagine would be a way to go for that. Sure. Can you discuss a bit, uh, and you, you delve into this in detail in the manuscript, some of the triage principles outside of the hospital, say when the patient is first evaluated, what, what do you think are the key steps in making the initial triage decisions? Yeah, I think the, the likelihood of suffering from a stroke, right, is probably the, the most important point. And then as a second step, 
um, the likelihood of benefiting from intravenous thrombolysis or endovascular treatment, because that really decides on which hospital um, you should get referred to as a patient. And then, I mean, there are different ways of, of finding out how to or like of, of determining the probability or estimating, I should say, the probability of um, of benefiting from EVT or IVT. The problem becomes that with, um, for instance, thrombectomy indications getting broader and broader and now um, also getting probably expanded to, to low aspects um, patients soon, patients with large infarct core, maybe patients with uh, medium vessel occlusions, maybe patients with low NIHSS somewhere in the future. There's almost no kind of stroke with a visible occlusion anymore that you wouldn't um, treat with thrombectomy. And that, of course, makes it really hard <laughs> because um, like in, in 2015, you had like an LVO. So that's pretty obvious, even to the paramedics with a clinical scale, they can tell pretty reasonably well um, which patient has probably has an LVO or not, and then kind of reroute those patients. Of course, hemorrhage is also a concern. But now with, with those um, low NIHSS patients um, potentially also getting treated with either thrombolysis or thrombectomy, I think that makes it really hard to, based on a clinical exam of some kind, um, judge which patient should go where. And that's where hopefully some imaging-based or um, yeah other solutions come in in the future. Well, imaging-based before getting to the hospital, I think, are, are you alluding to the mobile stroke units? Um, is this something that you see uh, should become more of a trend. Obviously, there are financial constraints in, in developing these units. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think it's a kind of a really neat solution for some certain, yes, certain infrastructures or certain geographies. Um, and I mean, they are, they are successfully used in, in some areas. I think it's probably not something that will become mainstream, just because, as you mentioned, the operating costs. Um, and also it... Um, it's kind of really dependent on where the mobile stroke unit is placed in relation to the hospital, um, in relation to other mobile stroke units. So it's kind of a very complicated um, yeah, process to establish those mobile stroke units in a way that um, patients really benefit. Um, one of our colleagues, Jessalyn Holodinsky, she's done a lot of um, conditional probability modeling to see um, where those mobile stroke units should be placed best. And it's it's kind of complicated, so I don't think that'll become mainstream. Um, what I was referring to is um, hopefully what I what I hope that will become available in the future at some point is like smaller portable technologies such as um, EEG or um, uh, volumetric impedance uh, phase shift spectroscopy or WIPs um, technology, some some kind of helmet that you can put on a patient and then that tells you whether there's a hemorrhage or not at least because that would at least allow you to proceed with IV thrombolysis. Um, but that's nowhere near clinical routine yet. So there are a couple of um, promising technologies out there, but none of them is kind of accurate enough to allow you to perform thrombolysis um, in a pre-hospital setting. And yeah, so they're not really used in, in clinical routine yet, but that's what, I, what I'm hoping for. Yeah, yeah. And, and you mentioned in your article that these types of devices potentially could be used in any EMS unit rather than having to have a, a mobile stroke unit. So I agree that the, that certainly is the future in assessing these patients uh, outside of the hospital. Um, let's talk a little bit about in, in the hospital itself, whether it be a primary stroke center or a comprehensive stroke center. You discuss in the manuscript timeframes, uh, you discuss teamwork. Can you talk a little bit about 
you know, how important these, these particular features are. You also allude to the stroke clock, which I, I thought was a very interesting point. Yeah, exactly. So I think teamwork is, um, and I hope that has been highlighted, highlighted because that's what we wanted to highlight throughout the, the whole manuscript is I think the most important factor in all these things. There's, you could have the best and newest technology um, if your team is not working together and not functional um, and not willing to to use this technology, then there's literally no no use in that technology. So I think like teamwork is the foundation on which um, accurate and like fast and and good uh, stroke patient triage is, is built, so to speak. In terms of in-hospital triage, um, yeah, this, this code stroke clock, um, what that is, is basically a clock. Um, some colleagues in Bern, in Switzerland, for instance, um, use that regularly and a few centers, I believe, in the U.S. as well. And in, in Canada, we've used it for a while. It's, it's basically a clock that um, runs with the patient. As soon as the patient um, enters the hospital, that clock kind of is attached to the patient and then um, shows you how much time has elapsed um, until treatment. And also, like... In some instances, it will also show you how much neurons have died, for instance. Um, and I think that's just something to make to make uh, the team aware that the time is, uh, yeah, time is elapsing and the patient will will suffer a worse outcome. So, I mean, it, it's just a nice um, reminder, I I should say, of um, yeah, the fact that you have to be fast. Um. Yeah, no, certainly. It's a nice reminder. It, it also creates a little bit of tension, I would think, uh, when the clock is running. You you also discuss in the manuscript simulation training. Can you elaborate a little bit on that in terms of, again, the in-hospital triage and, and how important that uh, particular aspect should be? Yeah, I, I think it's it's very important, especially for centers um, who have a little bit of a lower case volume. Um, the first time I kind of got in contact with simulation for training for stroke is when working with um, colleagues from Stavanger in Norway. And they're a relatively small university hospital. They do 50 thrombectomies per uh, year. So they don't um, see stroke patients that regularly or their volume is a little bit lower. So it's it's challenging for their whole team, including neurology, anesthesia, intervention, neurointervention, and so on to stay in the flow, basically. Um, and what they've kind of established is a whole um, team training simulation run for a stroke patient. So... The way that works is there's a simulation dummy and um, every Wednesday afternoon the angio is blocked and the whole kind of stroke treatment team gets together. The patient uh, comes in. Everybody is there, the um, emergency medicine physician, the um, anesthesiologist, the neurologist, the um, neurointerventionalist. Um, and then they kind of simulate a whole stroke patient treatment, a thrombectomy case, basically. They start with patient assessment. Um, then it goes on to IV thrombolysis, and then they actually start simulating the thrombectomy using a simulator of, of one of the big companies. And um, I think that's actually the way to go. And one particular instance where that has been pretty helpful for them was during COVID, actually, because um, I think all the hospitals kind of struggled um, with um, how should we um, yeah, establish stroke treatment workflows during COVID um, if we don't know whether the patient is COVID positive and not much was known at that time about, about COVID. And then one thing they did is um, during those simulation runs, they kind of found um, a couple of weak points in their workflow. For instance, the donning and doffing of the PPE, it was done in, in places where you would kind of contaminate other areas. So they were able to kind of um, yeah rearrange their, their pathways in the hospital and also their workflows. Um, and actually were able to convince the um, Norwegian government even to switch um, Alteplas from, for Tenecteplas, for instance, because Tenecteplas can be given as a... Um, as a bolus instead of a, an infusion based on that simulation training. Um, 
So I think it, it can be quite useful to identify those um, points of confusion or weak spots um, in a workflow, especially for centers who don't do it that often. But even even for centers who do it more often, I think it can be of value, especially for for junior physicians or early early career physicians or trainees like me. Sure. Those are excellent points. Um, speaking of centers that do this at a high volume, could you run us through a bit of what your uh, triage scenario is like at Calgary? Um, it, specifically, I'm, I'm curious about your acute stroke imaging protocols, which is a point that you discuss and, and obviously a point of major uh, controversy and contention uh, among the neuroendovascular uh, community. All right. Um, just, yeah, if you could discuss that a bit, Joanna, that'd be great. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, in Calgary, there are kind of two scenarios. One of um, the patient directly presenting to um, to Foothills, um, that's the comprehensive stroke center, or one of the two comprehensive stroke centers here in Alberta. The second one is a transfer patient. And if the patient is a transfer patient, there are some interesting scenarios that can arise um, just because Alberta is so widespread and relatively sparsely populated. Transport is often airborne, and then um, if a patient presents to one of the smaller hospitals um, in, say, northern Alberta, then everybody kind of gets on a on a call, and then they discuss the best possible um, transport route for the patient, whether it's airborne or or landborne transport. And then there are questions like, can the helicopter make it with one tank of fuel, or do we have to stop somewhere in between, or do you have to kind of does the ambulance have to meet the helicopter? So it's kind of it's kind of interesting. Um, I haven't had that in Switzerland because. Switzerland is so small. So, And then once the patient um, presents, um, there's a stroke neurologist um, who will go to the ED, will see the patient together with the emergency physician, will accompany the patient to the CT scanner. Um, our triage paradigm is CT-based. And then, as, as you probably know, um, our kind of standard protocol for um, acute ischemic stroke patients is a non-contrast CT followed by a multiphase CTA. So that's... Um, an arterial uh, CTA from aortic arch to vertex, followed by two delayed phases, um, skull base to vertex. So that's basically a short version of a CT perfusion. It's just three series instead of the many, many series um, in CT perfusion that allows you to identify um, a kind of delay in, in collateral filling and washout, and that can be a hint um, for for vessel occlusion. So it's it's a short abbreviated version of CT perfusion that does not require post-processing. And I know that that's kind of a, a Canadian or a Calgary thing. We have become a bit more um, common users of, of CT perfusion, especially for smaller vessel occlusions, um, smaller MIVOs, um, medium vessel occlusions, distal vessel occlusions. So I think there's, yeah, that that's fine too. So um, I, mm -hmm. I trained in Basel and there we use CT perfusion for every single stroke case. So I think there are different, different ways of doing that. Um, of course, I sure. have to defend the multiphase CTA imaging paradigm since I'm here in Calgary. So, yeah. <laughs> That's right. You have to do what you're doing at home. Exactly. You discuss in, in the conclusion of the manuscript measuring endovascular treatment triage performance, and you discuss sensitivity and specificity. Could you elaborate a little bit more on those two issues? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, that's that's the goal to, of, of triage, right? To, to optimize um, triage accuracy, um, and there are different components to that. So, there's there's sensitivity meaning as many patients as can or like to identify as many patients as that can benefit from from EVT or IVT and transport them to the right hospital. So sensitivity really means not missing out on treatment opportunities. 
yeah. specificity on the other hand kind of means to to correctly identify all the patients um, who are who don't benefit from treatment and there are kind of different scenarios when you would like to um, maximize one or the other and i would argue that specificity is is really something you want to maximize in when establishing a new treatment service for instance or in a lower and middle income country where you um you just start off with EBT and you really want to maximize EBT success and then broaden um, treatment indications from there. And that's that's what was done um, even in, in North America and Europe, right? So the first trials had pretty narrow treatment indications and then subsequently they were kind of broadened. And uh, sensitivity, I would argue, is, is something that most large um, hospitals in the US and, and maybe in Europe um, would, would try to maximize just treating as many patients as possible, not missing out on patients, knowing that um, some of the patients we treat, they may not benefit. And I think the best example for that is the low aspects patients where um, based on data, they kind of benefit from EVT. But if we look at our own cases, then it's sometimes a little bit frustrating because you have to treat a lot of them to achieve one that actually benefits, right? So the number needed to treat yeah. is, is higher. So, and I think those are kind of the, the balances to strike. And it depends a little bit on the resources you have available, also on the inter-hospital transfer capacity, on the treatment capacity, of course. Those are all considerations. Well, th thank you, Joanna, for, the, for this discussion. I, I enjoyed this manuscript, and I, I particularly enjoyed your conclusion, where you conclude by saying the optimization of EVT triage is an active process requiring concerted efforts that cannot simply rely on passive flow of knowledge. This really speaks to the fact that this is a process outside the hospital and inside the hospital that we need to continue to evaluate and to continue to improve um, for the sake of our, our patients. It was interesting, you, you mentioned the route of transport and whether it's uh, on surface streets or if it's uh, via the air. And one of the one of the issues that we face in in Phoenix, uh, in a you know a big city, it's a six million uh, person population, is that air transport actually is much slower than mm -hmm. ground transport. And every time we hear that a patient is coming from a hospital that's ten miles away via helicopter, we know already that we're building in up to an hour of delay in terms of getting that patient, loading that patient and the patient arriving. So even in environments where there is, you know, a high, a high financial perspective, um, the, the intangible factors always see, seem to weigh in a bit. But um, anyway, I wanted to thank you very much for joining me today uh, on this podcast. Again, your manuscript, Recent Developments in Pre-Hospital and In-Hospital Triage for Endovascular Stroke Treatment will appear in the November print issue of the JNIS and is currently on the JNIS website. Joanna, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Thank you. Um, pleasure to, to be here with you. Thank you for listening to the JNIS podcast. As a reminder, you can find this paper we discussed today linked in the description of this episode. If you'd like to hear about our next episode or listen to our previous podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at jnis.bmj.com. Until next time, take care. <laughs> <laughs>